This morning we look at the subject, a title, Like Father, Like Son, Part 2, from John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. We, you might have heard the, the saying, he is the spitting image of his father, especially when we refer to about when we talk about family resemblance or she is the spitting image of her mother. Well, last week we looked at the first part of the discourse of Jesus where the work of the father and the work of the son are indistinguishable. They are the same. There's a continuance. It, it, it relates, it, it connects, it is flowing from one to the other. The flip side is that the frustrations and anger that sometimes people express towards the Father, towards God, the same type of reactions were the ones that were displayed towards Jesus, towards the Son. Because we all seem to have an idea of how and when we want God to do things. We, we sort of feel that we have God worked out. That's assuming that the person is a believer in the first place. That we've come to know and understand everything that there is of God. That nothing unexpected is going to come or break through like the doof-doof music across the river. We've got it all worked out, you see. But what about the person who refuses to believe, despite all the amount of evidence that is out there? A friend of mine said, I won't believe unless I can prove it. You've probably heard the same. What he meant is the old test in a lab unless it can be tested scientifically in a lab, whatever. But there is, of course, another place to test things, not just in a lab. Another place where you can test things is in a court of law. You test the evidence, the witnesses, the called, and all of that. In the passage before us, Jesus puts his credentials on trial. His enemies are accusing him of Blasphemy, it's a very serious charge that deserved death. He's proven, he's found guilty and Jesus is defending himself because what he was saying is true. And he's he's speaking here as though he were in a court of law. And according to the Old Testament law in Judaism, something was not regarded as valid unless it was supported by at least two Witnesses. So let's first of all look at verses 31 to 32, the need for a witness. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who testifies in my favour and I know that his testimony about me is true. As we have seen through history, any charlatan can... uh, can come around and claim some spiritual status, some spiritual powers and all of that type of stuff. In order to protect the population from this type of, 
of thing, the Jewish legal system had an important principle called the principle of attestation or substantiation through multiple witnesses. Are they, say, are they who they say they are? Can we believe them? Can we believe what they're saying? In the same way that if a man was accused of committing a crime, he could, he could not be found guilty unless there were at least two or three corroborating witnesses to confirm the guilt. There are protections. Another way to look at this is a bit closer to home. Being a pastor who has been in one church for for a while, like myself, it, it has certain advantages, except in one area. Familiarity. There is a phenomenon where people can hear the truth right out of the scriptures for years and years and it never seems to click. It, it just doesn't connect. It does, they don't, it never seem to believe it until they hear it from someone else who basically says exactly the same thing that myself or somebody, other pastor that you, a church that you go to have been saying it all along. And then I hear the remark. Lo and behold, and they come and say to me, I never heard that before. How come you never preach on that? I just have to bite my tongue and rejoice in the fact that at long last, they finally got it. This is certainly one of the explanations for the success of mass evangelisms like the ones of Billy Graham and and all of them who over many decades, people, the church basically goes out there and and the gospel is presented. Not that the pastor has never presented it, it's just that somebody else does it and it clicks. The power of God. Imagine that. So truth there is a certain familiarity with the truth where there has to be a different way, a different miraculous way that God breaks through and suddenly fits together. When our Lord says that his testimony is not true, he doesn't mean that it is false. He means that it was not true in their eyes. That according to them, it wasn't a, a valid testimony. So here Jesus is calling on others to testify in his favour that they recognise him on their own. This way they will be unbiased witnesses who speak the truth. When men give testimony in a witness box, they commit themselves that what they're saying is true. That's what a testimony is. It is a committal. 
You're not free in a witness box to say one thing in one breath and then something else in the next. The opposing lawyer, defence, whoever, is going to tear you apart if there is any inconsistency in your witness. You are committed. And so here John, the work, John testifies about the works of Jesus, the Father, the Scriptures. They have all given witness to the Son, that He is the Son of God. And and that is their committal. It isn't just the words of Jesus. It is everything else around that adds to the claim, that supports the claim that Jesus will make. So first let us look at the witness of John the Baptist from verses 33 to 35. The witness of John the Baptist. Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Remember how John's, John the Baptist's witness at the beginning was, was initially accepted and he enjoyed a period of popularity, particularly at the beginning of his ministry. Some Jews listened to him and went out to be baptised by him in the Jordan. But it didn't last, especially when John started getting personal with his message of repentance. He started preaching hellfire and brimstone. It was fine to speak about sin in general, but it was not okay when he started addressing personal sins. So once where they might have been drawn to the light, eventually that light drove them away as it threatened to expose them for what they really were. They began to hate the light. A German commentator said they were attracted by his brightness but not by his warmth. They were attracted by the fact that he was an interesting new character who was out there, who came out of the wilderness dressed as he did and eating the things that he ate and people were naturally attracted to him but not to his essential message. He was a lamp that gave light but he wasn't the light. He was a lamp because the light was coming into the world. You see, you would have seen this in the great outdoors, that uh, a lamp not only attracts people who want light, but it attracts the moths as well, doesn't it? And there are many moths who also gather around the preaching of the Word of God, but no real response to the things of God. Another problem is that when people know so little of the Bible, 
that they also become attracted or confused even and fooled by the fads, by the fads of the day. Fads come and go. And people are interested for a while. They get all excited about this thing or this new thing or perhaps even this preacher or that preacher. It might go on for months, maybe even a couple of years. Eventually, however, their responsiveness changes and they move on to the next thing and the next thing. Remember, God does not change. The message of the gospel does not change. We are the ones that are to change in response to the gospel. To greater maturity, to greater godliness. So the first witness is John the Baptist. Then the other witness are the works of Jesus. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier, weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Beyond the witness of John were the works of Jesus. Because in, as we know, Jesus did a lot more than just talk. He put his words into action. As they say, he walked the talk. And these were the miraculous signs that pointed to him and and gave his claims legitimacy. Even even Nicodemus, even Nicodemus recognised this fact when he said to Jesus that no man could do the things Jesus was doing unless unless God were with him. And and the Jews had just witnessed a marvellous example of of the work, of of the sign of Jesus when this paralysed man who had been paralysed for 38 years began to walk. But it wasn't just the fact that God was with him, he was God in the flesh. And John is giving us and will continue to give us one miracle story after miracle story and he isn't done yet because each miracle is another opportunity to teach another lesson that we need to learn, another facet of Jesus that we need to understand and look at. And until chapter 11, we're going to continue to see miracle after miracle. And these signs are indicative they are pointing to the fact that Jesus really is the sign of God. It's like those fluorescent lights, isn't it? The, uh, you know, Eater Joe's, that type of thing, the big signs in Las Vegas. I don't know if you've been there, but they're all pointing. All these signs, they're all pointing. All of them are pointing to Jesus. They manifested his glory. In Cana of Galilee, when Jesus turned the water into wine, John said, it was the first of the signs through which he revealed 
what? His glory. Revealed his glory. A few of them were impressed about the quality of the wine. Man, I've never had this stuff before. This is good. No, it's not about the wine. It's not about the miracle. It's about who it was pointing to. It was about his glory. His glory. It showed him to have come from out of this world. From out of this world. It revealed and disclosed that he truly was divine. He didn't just come across the river. He was out of our human existence. He was, he was spoken of, but he, he broke through in a way that had never been done before and never will be done again until he comes. Truly divine, the son of his heavenly father, like father, like son. Now let's listen from the Father, verses 37 to 38, the witness of the Father. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. When did the Father bear witness of Jesus? Boy. He certainly did this at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus came up out of the water, John the Baptist saw the Spirit descending like a dove and he heard a voice from heaven saying, what did he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I, I mean, it was amazing words, aren't they? It's a confirmation. It's, it's, it's more than that. It, it's, it's the pride of the Father on the Son. The very voice of God. The Father testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. And, the, and Jesus here is telling the Jews that while they might think that they have listened to God all their lives, reality is that they, they haven't. They haven't. Familiarity has bred a certain contempt. If they had, you see, if, if they had, they would have believed in him as the promised Messiah. Their opinion about him is the deciding difference in whether they are believing or unbelieving. It's okay to have questions, but their questions turn into doubts and then to full enmity and revulsion towards anything that Jesus did. Do you want to hear God? Listen to Jesus. Do you want to see God? Look to Jesus, like Father, like Son. If you like the Father, you will like His Son. 
If you've seen him, you have seen the Father. Now we come to the witness of the Scriptures, verses 39 to 40. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I can hear someone say, uh, 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 uh. wait a minute, I thought you Christians, and particularly you Baptists, were all about the Bible. Isn't that what it's all about? Jesus is saying, no, it's all about me. All the scriptures are not the end, rather they are the avenue, the the tool through which you find me. They bear witness about me, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah. It's all about me. Now the Jews treated the scripture, the the Jews treated the study of the scriptures as an end in itself. They studied the scriptures in order to expand their knowledge of the scriptures rather than what it might do and change their lives. They memorized it, they chapters and, and books, entire books, and wow, it's impressive what they used to do. They studied for what they could get out of the Scriptures rather than for what the Scriptures could do in their lives. The Jews studied the Scriptures diligently, but they were blinded. They could, they could quote every passage in their Bible. They could even tell you how many words were in each book that we're into numbers and adding and, and, and all of this stuff. And, and, and But all of these things, as diligent as they were, the central primary message eluded them. Yes, they were searching for eternal life, but they missed the author of life. Proverbs 420 to 22 we read at the beginning which says my son pay attention to what I say turn your ear to my words do not let them out of your sight keep them within your heart for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body Some of you who like to read Christian books and are into theology and all of that will, will know that there are many Bible scholars today who search through the Bible. They know all the biblical languages. They speak about the various hypotheses and theories concerning the makeup and the structure of the scriptures. Who wrote this? Who wrote what? At what period? And and how do the words come together and they, they look at the poetry and, and they, they pull the scriptures apart and, and, and they look at the origin of the words in their context, they study it, they teach it. 
And it, and it is helpful as you go through the commentaries in some of these very wordy commentaries to help us in the interpretation of the scriptures, especially for those of us who teach the scriptures. And whatever way you look at it, the scriptures stands, stands up for thousands of years to public scrutiny. It doesn't matter who's had a look at it. It will stand up to any scrutiny. But in all of this, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. The whole point of the scriptures is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We will miss the treasure if we miss this very fact. Yes, I wish all of us could study the scriptures with the same dedication as the Jews and and love to memorise the word and be able to quote scripture to one another. Don't become lazy, but but really revel every day to to open the Bible and to read it. I, I, I wish we could all be like this. But at the same time, I don't want us to fall into the same trap. If your study of the Bible remains academic, historical, of historical value, if it's just simply a moral exercise, do this, don't do that. If, if he comes, we've all met these people as well. Oh, I love the prophetic books. You know, I just want the time travel. When is it going to happen? When the Big Bang is going to happen? When Jesus is going to come back? I just want to study that. Unfortunately, if, if that is all it is, then you, you're, following, you're following the same trap as, as these Jews. The reason the Jews would not come to Jesus in that day is the same reason people do not come to him today. It's not for the lack of evidence. It's because they don't want to. It has everything to do with the spirit of rebellion and pride. And and again, I will say, we, we cannot argue people into heaven. No matter how compelling is your argument, you cannot cause people to believe. Not even Jesus was compelling enough for them. Not even Jesus. Not Paul. Not Peter. So what makes you think that you're going to be so special in converting anyone? They heard his preaching. They saw the miracles. And they still turn away. The reason they turned away is because they wanted to. They determined, despite all the evidence, to ignore the witness of Jesus And after ignoring, of course, 
they would have to face the consequences. So what are the results of ignoring the witnesses, verses 41 to 47? Jesus said, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But don't think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you will believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? The Jews certainly revered the Mosaic law. Everything Moses said or did was gospel to them. They loved it. They reveled in it. Along with Abraham, they thought of him as their spiritual father. But Jesus is telling them that who they think is their spiritual father is actually going to be their accuser. Why? Because they haven't believed in the one of whom Moses bore witness. And these are the consequences of unbelief. And so while it appears that the Jews rejected the testimony of the various witnesses of Jesus, it's more a case that they simply chose to ignore them. I know a lot of people like that. They haven't overtly rejected Jesus or the Bible or the Lord or Christianity as a whole. It is only that they have chosen to ignore them in the normal course of their lives. But the results are obviously the same as if they had denied and rejected Jesus. So what is the problem? How can people recognise truth, know it to be true and yet turn from the very one of whom it speaks? And, And as Gentiles we can accuse the Jews and say, how can they read the Old Testament and not see the prophecies about Jesus? It's all there. It's so obvious. But of course, what we fail to see is that millions of Gentiles are doing the same thing today. And Jesus will be declaring to to us, he'll be saying, you do not accept me. You do not accept me. That, that's a fact. And, and again, most people think that if someone does not believe something, what they need is more light, more evidence, more explanations, more simple language, more clarity. And then their eyes will be open. That's what we, we think. More education. 
more information. You probably noticed during this drought that uh, a few of your plants have died. That's been their experience. Richard will attest to this in, in Denham Court. Once, uh, you might find this fascinating to discover that once a plant has died, you can water it, you can fertilise it, you can even take it out to the sun. It's dead! It's dead! It's dead! You can start crying, you can do anything you want. No, no, don't die on me. You can do all these things, it's dead. It's dead. Nothing of that, no, no effort will work. And if you do not believe the truth, you now know you will not believe greater truth when you hear it. If you don't, if you don't respond to what you know to be true now, you will not respond when you hear further truth. doesn't matter how much light, how much fertiliser, how much watering and everything else, it's dead. So unbelief, unbelief is more than an intellectual problem. If it were an intellectual problem, it could be met by explanation. But it is a problem of an orientation, a moral orientation of life and of the love of God. The problem is the problem of the will. To be an unbeliever means that you cannot believe unless God in his sovereign grace and mercy does something extraordinary and powerful to change your heart and change the way you think. To change your will, to, to enable us in the day of his power and revelation that the scale from their eyes are fallen, that, that your eyes are open to truth and you suddenly become receptive. And you respond to his grace and his mercy, irrespective of the cost. You respond, you are open and you receive it for what it is, the Word of God. More about that in the rest of John, by the way. That's just a tease. Where does that leave us? Well, we have the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Father, the witness of the miracles of Jesus, the witness of 2,000 years of the power of Jesus miraculously delivering men and women from their chains to salvation. Millions of voices bear witness to the fact that God continues to work 
and people's lives in our world. That God continues to transform lives through the power of the Word, the Holy Spirit, speaking to dead bones to bring them back to life. So yes, a dead plant doesn't need more fertiliser or more light or more water. What he needs is to be exposed to the miracle, the miraculous light of Christ to bring it back to life. And that is God's job. That's his prerogative. You and I can't do that. What we can do is continue to submit ourselves so that he uses us to preach his word and then he will do what we cannot do, the miraculous, from death to life. And may all the glory go to him. So let us sit.